This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Beth Allison Barr, author of the recent book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood how the subjugation of women became gospel truth. This book is of critical importance to these sorts of conversations that need to happen here in America right now. As was the case with uh, recent interviews with people like Dr. Anthea Butler, this book addresses many of the experiences that lots of listeners will have had in dealing with complementarian theology and the oppression of women in Christian spaces, specifically conservative Christian spaces. Dr. Barr does a really wonderful job of marrying both her own personal experience to the broader historical trends that we see in Christian history and how women have previously been empowered and even how the text itself can empower women. And I think that people listening to this conversation will... Uh, feel emboldened to have conversations in Christian spaces as well as outside of Christian spaces, even if you are trying to better understand your own personal experience in Christian spaces, even after having left them. This is a book that may suit you well. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. I'm also joined in this interview by two guest co-hosts, Emily Ottenreath and Laura Navarro, who you'll meet shortly. You can find in the show notes places to learn more about Beth Allison Barr, as well as my co-hosts, Emily Ottenreath and Laura Navarro. And you can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. You can learn more about Irreverent Media Group at irreverent.fm. And if you do enjoy this show, consider supporting it through a paid subscription to the Post-Evangelical Post at postevangelicalpost.com or by leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. As always, this show was produced by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. All right, everybody, let's get right to it. My guest today is Beth Allison Barr. Associate Professor of History and Associate Dean of the Graduate School at Baylor University in Waco, and author of the book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Dr. Barr, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And for this interview, I'm also joined by two guest co-hosts. The first is Emily Ottenreath. Emily is an LGBTQ activist, 
parent and bookseller at a seat at the table books.org. Emily, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. And my second co-host is Laura Navarro. Laura is a blogger, mental health and women's health advocate and parent. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining me for this conversation about your book, uh, Beth. Before we started recording, you said I could call you Beth. So just... Yes, yes, I did. I said you could do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and what I really appreciate about this book is that it's really one of my favorite types of writing, which blends personal narratives with connects them to these like broader historical trends that we see. And I, I just really like that that type because it engages us and and really draws us into a bigger historical narrative. And to kick off this conversation about your book, I actually want to hand it over to Laura, who yeah. made a personal connection of her own um, in, in the first chapter. Um, I, As I was reading this book, I was actually kind of struck by the fact that you um, brought up uh, the story of Gilgamesh, because oh, yeah. um, I am actually a Syrian. And so, oh. um, yeah, so I don't really hear much about that outside of like biblical contexts. Um so I was very like struck by that and the cultural implications that you brought up um, in Middle Eastern cultures and how uh, it's very patriarchal. Um, mm-hmm. And just because of, you know, what I've, I guess, grown up in and then kind of coupling that with evangelical um, fundamentalism in some ways, um, how it kind of was like a one, two punch for, you know, the ways that it was applied in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine you know, that's one of the reasons that I talked about Gilgamesh is because I based this, I really based the outline of the book on the way I teach my classes. And it was really the only way I could wrap my head around how to do, um, you know, over 4,000 years of history in a 70,000 word book, which actually is 72,000. I couldn't quite make the um, 70,000 limit. So it was, I was thinking about how to do it. And I thought, you know, I can, I'm going to do it the way that I teach. And in fact, it worked out even better than I thought it would, um, because I think what it really helped to establish is this continuity of patriarchy and this continuity of patriarchy that eclipses um, different faiths and different cultures and different time periods and how similar this patriarchal structure is. And that was really the thing that I wanted, because I think in the evangelical world, um, the dominant narrative about biblical womanhood and biblical manhood is that this is countercultural, that this is the way that God has called Christians to be, and it's the way something that distinguishes us from the rest of the world. But when we actually put it in this broader historical context, what we find is it, it's just something that makes evangelicals the same the same as all of world history. And, um, and so I think the Epic of Gilgamesh, I just, it, I use that text in my class because my students um, connect with the characters in it, the, the humanist, the raw human emotion really comes out in the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's one of my favorite stories. Uh, it's a horrible story in some ways, but it's one of my favorite stories because of the humanness and of, and of course Gilgamesh's quest um, to be known. And he does all these horrible things trying to be known. And at the end of it, what he finally realizes is that um, he needs 
you know, that immortality is not going to be his gift and he needs to be a good king. And so, I mean, it has this, you know, somewhat good um, story, I suppose, but it just really connects with the struggles and it helps my students realize that even though we're living in 21st century U.S., um, that these same sort of struggles haunted the, the ancient world as well. So that's why I used it. I'm really glad that you connected with it. Um, I The other text I was going to use in that chapter is the Ramayana which is an ancient Hindu text and or Indian text and um, it's I had to cut it due to word count but that was the other one that was going to be next to the Gilgamesh story. I think for me it was actually I, I kind of learned something from it because as I was brought up um, you know Assyrians now are Eastern Orthodox um, mm -hmm. and so they follow that Eastern Orthodoxy and um, I've been sort of unpacking that a lot because it was like, you know, we go to church on Christmas and Easter and we get baptized. And that sort of was how I was raised until my parents sort of, you know, wandered into the evangelical side of it. And that changed yeah. things quite a bit. But prior to yeah. that, it was, you know, um, it was amazing to me how between the Middle Eastern culture being already very patriarchal and very much where women are subjugated, just period. Um, adding to that the context of, you know, the Bible, which it was like, it was like a, um, a measuring stick in addition to the cultural imperatives. And so yeah. as I'm starting to unpack that, I, you know, and learning, because I had no idea that, you know, ancient Assyrians were mm -hmm. originally uh, pagan, because you hear the story of Jonah, and you're like, oh, they were evil, and they were scattered, and we don't have a home country because of it, and all of those things. And so um, kind of learning, you know, from that, you know, reframing, um, I think the fact that it was almost like colonization in some way back then to be oh, yeah. Eastern Orthodoxy or, or as it looks now. Yeah, no. So I quote a textbook in there you might like, and it's Martin Stoll's um, text on ancient Assyria. And so that might be one. I think it's Martin Stoll. You might check me on that. But um, anyway, I quote it in there. And so you might want to, you might like that. Um, it's pretty good. I use it when I'm teaching that part of my class because the textbooks I use for my students don't go into that much detail. But I'll look. I'll definitely check it out. Yeah. Another thing that you do that is really interesting in the subsequent chapter uh, is you challenging this narrative around Paul and the Pauline epistles and mm -hmm. very much the different household codes and the pastoral epistles that that talk about uh, the infamous. Uh, verses in First Timothy yeah, and elsewhere. Yeah, the texts of terror, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and you really do challenge that uh, that modern and sort of contemporary understanding of Paul to, and how they're used to uphold complementarianism uh, within oh, yeah. within white evangelical spaces. Oh yeah. Emily, did you have any any particular questions about that? That was one of the things that that. Um, that we talked about previously. Yeah, Beth, it's really nice to get a chance to talk to you about this because yeah. I did not think you could do it when I started that chapter. <laughs> I, I grew up in church. I grew up going to a Christian school. I got an undergrad degree in theology. And for my later school years and my undergrad degree, I was really trying to be that submissive female partner that Paul said I had to be. Um, you might have the sense already that did not work out for me. And I have never been able to reconcile Paul until now. I mean, it was just incredible to read this and see just how much his words have been removed from their context and twisted and mistranslated. So I'd love to hear you share a little bit about what readers can 
do to prepare themselves for even reading that chapter and what they can expect from it if they feel like I did. Yeah, no, so I'll tell you, when I first started to write this book, um, I decided I wasn't going to talk about Paul because I was so tired of Paul. I was so tired. I feel like the conversation has just gotten stuck. And in fact, you know, the converse, it doesn't really get past Paul. All we do is keep talking about the same five or six verses over and over and over again. And I was like, y'all, if you are reading the entire Bible through five or six verses, that's already problematic. And so, you know, I was just like, I'm done with this. Uh, history changes the narrative. And it was, it was funny because I'm doing this and I'm talking out. My husband always says that I, I narrate my life out, out loud. So I was in the kitchen. I'm narrating my decision about this. And he's overworking and he doesn't even look at me. And he says, it's not going to work. <laughs> and he's like, it's not going to work. He said that you have to unpack Paul for them before they'll hear anything else you say. And I was pretty irritated at him for a while, but um, I decided he probably probably was right about that. And so I poured my, really poured, I think a solid six to eight weeks into writing the Paul chapter. It's probably the one that um, took me the longest. It and the Reformation chapter were the two that I probably spent the most amount of single time on and went through the most drafts. Um, because I knew I had to get it right. I knew if I was going to talk about it, I had to get it right. And what I really wanted to push people through with the Paul chapter is I didn't want to push them into a particular rigid reading of the text. I didn't want them to come away and say, you have to understand it this way. And if you don't understand it this way, you're completely wrong. Because I think that's what we get fed in evangelical churches. We get told we have to read Paul this way. These are the people who read it right. And if you don't adhere to what they say, then you're completely outside of orthodoxy. And of course, being as a historian, being a church historian, I know that there have been plenty of orthodox Christians, and I use that with a small o, um, who have not seen eye to eye, you know, that these verses have been interpreted quite differently throughout the course of human history. And so I wanted, I wanted my readers to get a sense of that, that you can read Paul differently and still be a, a Christian and still believe um, in the Christian narrative. And so that's what I was trying to do. Um, so I, I asked a lot of questions in it and mostly what I wanted them to see sort of if they walked away with any bottom line, I wanted them to see that Paul cannot be saying, you know, this is the one thing I will stand on. Paul cannot be saying that women have to be silent because Paul doesn't make women be silent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Romans 16 just explodes everything about, you know, complementarian teachings about what women have to do because those women are not, do not fit the complementarian mold. And so that's why I ended, of course, with Romans 16. So what I wanted to push readers, I wanted to introduce um, to scholarship that most evangelicals aren't aware of, um, that's mostly done by actually still believing biblical scholars um, that helps see that when we put Paul in his historical context, and when we really look at it through the lens of the first century world, we find a very different picture than what complementarian teaches. And of course, complementarity or biblical womanhood, as I describe it, you know, teaches that women's primary calling is to be submissive to their husband um, and to be under male leadership. And that simply is, and even not to teach or exercise authority in church. And when we actually put Paul in his historical context, 
we see while there may be variations on trying to understand what Paul is doing, he is not trying to push women out of leadership, nor is he trying to emphasize Roman patriarchy through the household codes. Um, so that those were the things that that was kind of big picture. Do you want me to get any more specific than that or? Well, on that last note, I mean, you actually talk about Paul as sort of a liberator, and that is such a reversal. I'd love for you to share just a little bit about, um, you said Paul was not trying to uphold Roman patriarchy. How does that even work? Yeah, no. So what I think, so I kind of, you know, Paul is interesting. I wrote a blog post once um, when about one of the images that I was you know, I spent a lot of time in the UK and I was in London and I was at the National Portrait Gallery and I was going through and there was a picture, there was a, um, there was a 16th century image of Paul. And I sat in front of that thing for like 45 minutes and just stared at Paul. And the thing that really struck me about it is as I was looking at him, I was like, you know what? Paul is a person just like me. He's living in this world of Rome but he has understood the revolution of Jesus. And his goal, I mean, when Paul was transformed, his goal was to share Jesus with people. And everything Paul does is trying to put Christians on the right path to share Jesus with others, to stop arguing about things that don't matter and that hurt the gospel, and to actually share Jesus. And so, Paul, I don't know, you know, so one of the things that I say, I say, you know, the Christian revolution, with, which is Jesus and the way Jesus treated women, also comes through with Paul. Because Paul does not limit women based upon their sex. You know, in the Roman world, there is this idea that women are not, you know, they are not the leaders and the teachers like men. They are not, you know, especially in the Greco-Roman world, they don't sit at the tables with men unless they are mostly for, you know, sexual entertainment or something like that. And here we have Paul, who is not only saying, you know, it's not only putting women in the room with men, you know, the household codes, it shows us a picture of the Christian house church where women, men, slaves, children are all actually worshiping together. And this is completely different from anything that would have been exp experienced in the Greco-Roman culture. And then he also puts them all on equal footing by simply addressing the household codes to them all. I think Lucy Pepiot does a beautiful job in drawing, you know, drawing this out where she says, look, and she's not the only one. There's several scholars, you know, Beverly Roberts Gaventa, who I also absolutely love, points this out too, and Scott McKnight, um, that, you know, in the Greco-Roman world, usually household codes were directed, and by household codes, we're talking about, you know, in Ephesians, wives be subject to your husbands, um, etc. That these household codes were usually directed to the head of the house only, the patriarch. But Paul directs them to all of them. I mean, they're actually in the room when he's talking to them. And this by itself, I mean, is putting them, he's inviting everyone into the conversation. Everybody's sitting at the table, if we want to use our modern term. Um, and that to me, I think is, is revolutionary. And we miss it because instead of letting people sit at the table the way Paul did, um, women, men, you know, slaves, all of these folks sit at the table. Um, instead, what we've done with modern biblical womanhood is we've tried 
tried to put only men at the table and we've tried to push out all other voices. And um, that has led to a very narrow understanding of the Bible, as well as a very ripe for abuse and misuse, which the, we were seeing. You know, we are seeing the fruit of this. So you can see why I call my bookstore a seat at the table. I like that you referenced that multiple times. One last thing before we move on from this. Yes. You talk about wives submit to your husbands. Paul says something right after that, that the way that you brought out the meaning of that, I thought was very powerful. Yeah. Um, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And oftentimes in modern evangelical speak, we interpret this as servant leadership, which I don't even, anyway, we won't even get into what they actually, you know, imply by that, but it's often interpreted as servant leadership. And it's like, that's not at all actually what this is saying. In the Greco-Roman world, husbands literally had the power of life and death over their family members. And in fact, one of the texts that I teach that it was a section that got cut from this chapter. I had this whole section on it and it got cut, um, but it's a book by Sarah Pomeroy and it's called The Murder of Regula. And it is about this actually pretty wealthy woman who gets married um, in, she's in the second century and she gets married to this Roman guy and he ends up um, murdering her uh, essentially when she's pregnant with their um, sixth, sixth child, try to remember what child, anyway, one of their later um, children, and he ends up murdering her and he gets off. Um, in fact, it's Marcus Aurelius uh, who actually lets him off, um, essentially goes to bat for him and says, you know, he, he didn't do anything wrong. And so he gets all, he gets out of it and he gets all of her money and all of her stuff and he gets to do whatever he wants with her. And this story, it's a horrible story, but it also really shows the precarity of women, even, I mean, Regula was a wealthy woman um, and she still was literally under the power of life and death of her husband. And while most husbands probably won't murder their wives, you know, in the Roman world, some do. <laughs> and um, this power did exist for them. And what Paul says, if you put what Paul says in the context of that world, what you see is that Paul says, you know what, husbands, instead of having the power of life and death over your wife, you have to give up your life for her. And that is so radical because essentially what Paul says, he says, I don't care what the Roman world says here. In the world of Jesus, you give your life up for your wife. I mean, he completely rewrites, reimagines this power structure. Um, I really liked, I used Rachel Held Evans' term that I just really like. Um, and she wrote, she used it more than once, but in a blog post that I referenced, I think in 2012. And it was, she said, Paul is doing a Jesus remix um, of the household codes. And I just love that because I do, I think that's exactly what Paul is doing. So that's it. I think it's, if we really read the household codes correctly, we would see how revolutionary they are and how they are not supporting these modern readings of complementarianism. I can't say it anymore. I've said it too many times, now I can't say it. I have actually one, one more thing um, to add or question, I guess, about that. Sure. Is when, you know, talking about, you know, the Roman household code or how they worked it, it was interesting when you quoted Aristotle and how yeah. basically it was like women were seen we should look upon the female state as 
as being, as it were, a deformity. And mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting to me that I hear this a lot when, you know, as a person who's, you know, deconstructed has said, like, a lot of this stuff that was written doesn't apply to us now, you know, just culturally, socially. Um, and a lot of Christians will kind of fire back, well, no, it, it applies no matter what, you know what I mean? God's word is uh, is living, a, a living text. Um, but it's so interesting to me that they say that, but saying like women were monstrous, which is, you know, one of the things you said, it feels almost as if they've taken historically, contextually where Paul was living and then like imbued it into the scripture yeah. and is, you know, and are telling us this is, this is how it is. Like men are the heads of the household. There's, there's headship, there's hierarchy, uh, you know, and this is how it is. And um, uh, I actually heard uh, Beth Moore speak when I was a college student. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she, she, the way she said it, and even this back then I was like 19, it made me bristle a little was, you know, she used an umbrella um, um, analogy, like, you know, men are, men need to kind of, you know, shield us as, you know, um, to protect mm -hmm. us and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that was very um, interesting that it kind of like turns on its ear, which you've done with Paul, which was fascinating to me as it is. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. See how they brought that historical context forward as biblical truth. That's, that's exactly what I think we have done. I think that we have, instead of, instead of really seeing, you know, I mean, if you actually look at the Bible from the Old Testament to the New, what you see is that there really is a resistance narrative towards gender roles, um, towards what women and men are expected to be. And you see this, I mean, you can even think about in the Old Testament, you can think about how many women are put forward in an ancient text that's written by men. I mean, it, it's amazing if you actually think about that, how many women we know by name, we know by name who are put forward and they are not simply put forward as in their sexual roles. Um, they're put forward, you know, for what they do. Not all of them. Sometimes they are relegated to their sexual roles, but they're put forward by what they do. Um, and this continues in the New Testament. And in fact, one of the striking things about the women in the New Testament is we often, they're often not linked with men, um, you know, who knows? And even men, they're not linked. I mean, who knows? Like Peter seems to have a wife. We get reference to that. We don't know anything much more about it. I mean, we know that these people were most likely married because most people were married, but we don't really get a hint of that. Um, that's not important to their ministry. Um, you know, it doesn't name them as um, father, servant, leader, um, you know, loving husband and parent of four. You know, that's not in their their Twitter handle. Um, and I don't think it would have been in their Twitter handle because it's not, that wasn't the point. And so I think that, I mean, it's just striking to me when we really think about what the Bible is doing and how what we have done to it instead is we have taken the background noise of the Bible. I think several people have said this, um, the background noise of the Bible and, of patriarchy, and we have made it the prominent theme. We have made it the driving narrative, and we have read the ancient world back into the text. And so, you know, I'm, in fact, this afternoon, I'm going to go talk to an undergrad class at Baylor, and um, 
I'm going to talk to him about Mary and Martha. And I mean, I, I didn't do much of this in the book, uh, but if you look at the story of Mary and Martha, you know, the normal understanding of Mary and Martha and Luke um, is, you know, of course, Mary's the one who sits at Jesus's feet and is Martha's reprimanded and for getting upset and wanting Mary to help her. Well, the way that we use Usually, I mean, in fact, as I'm talking about it, I bet y'all are envisioning in your minds the pictures that we often saw in Sunday school where um, Martha is being a domestic housewife, you know, and she even has a kerchief on her head and is sweeping or carrying around a chicken or something like that. And Mary, of course, is sitting at, at Jesus's feet, not doing the housework. But if you actually look at that text, the word that's used to describe Martha's work is ministry. It's the same word that is used to describe the disciples' work and the apostles' work. There is no difference. There is no reason that we interpret that word as housework except for what we bring to the text because we interpret Martha that way. And in fact, if we actually think about Mary and Martha, they are two sisters running a household on their own without um, a male patriarch um, some people try to make Lazarus older than, than they are. Probably he's younger, which is probably why his death is so startling, because he's, he's younger and not expected to die. Um, the fact that he's always listed at the end and is sort of the afterthought in this suggests he's probably younger. So it tells us that this already is not the traditional household that we think of. And in fact, probably what Mary and Martha are is they are probably disciples of Jesus who are leading in his ministry. And this is what's going on. Um, so anyway, it's just, but it's just amazing how much we carry to the text. We carry our own cultural expectations. And then we see the text as limiting women in a way that it actually doesn't. I actually think that discussion of Mary and Martha and how it's interpreted really dovetails really well into a lot of what you do when you talk about how modern translations have been created with complementarian ideas in mind, most especially the ESV or English yep. Standard Version. Um, you also talk write about in your book uh, the TNIV, which I was uh, a student at Indiana Wesleyan taking like inductive Bible study, uh, which was like a a required class for a lot of religion majors. And so we talked about the quote unquote controversy around gender and gender inclusive language at the time. Yeah. And it was actually something where our professor was probably more liberal than the students that he was teaching. I do remember someone made him answer point blank. How do you feel about this? And he said, I think people should see themselves reflected in scripture. And that was a laudable response that still st sticks with me today. Yeah. But I, I have to say, I also think a little so much about what you've what you've talked about about how we as modern evangelicals have sort of forgotten uh, or intentionally obscured a lot of this history. Yeah. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit, especially in relation to how some of these really popular translations like the ESV um, and one other personal anecdote. Uh, I worked at the Lifeway bookstores on Moody campus in like 2010, 2011. Did you? <laughs> um, in the back stock room and the ESV study Bible was a bestseller, man. Um, they pushed that thing so hard. That Bible felt ever present everywhere in any sort of more conservative evangelical denomination. And oh, yeah. that does have these agendas baked in. 
Oh yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. You know, the ESV okay, the ESV is so it's such an interesting story. I keep telling grad students there's like so many dissertations that need to be written on the ESV, like what it was doing and the impact that it's had and the marketing behind it. I mean, the marketing mm-hmm. behind it is crazy. Um yeah. and how it is it was sort of able to take over. Um so there's on the one hand, I'm fascinated by the ESV and what it has done. On the other hand, um, come next week, I think I'm going to get a whole lot of really, I, I think probably the chapter that's going to get me in the most trouble is my, um, is the, is the English Bible translation chapter. I think chapter five is the one that's going to get me in the most trouble. We'll see. We'll see if I'm right. Um, it may be Paul, <laughs> but I think it's going to be the English Bible translation because I, I go after the ESV. And mm-hmm. on the one hand, you know, I think the, the miracle of the Bible um, is that so much of the story stays the same. You know, the narrative of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, despite all of the things that we've done to the text, um, is really intact. And in fact, you know, variations in the Bible, I, I work with manuscripts all the time. You know, that's what I do. And I study uh, 15th century sermon manuscripts. And so I study their variations. And it's remarkable to, remarkable to me how many variations enter into sermon manuscripts just within a century. And it's more than what we actually see in the biblical text. And so, I mean, it's just remarkable um, that sort of the way that the story has remained. But at the same time, we, do ch- we have changed a lot um, of things that I call the little stories of the Bible. And one of those little stories that I think has been the most significant is what we've done to women. And it's just changing. Like, you know, one of the examples I use in the book is the example of Junia. And Junia in the ESV, she is, I I misstated this on one podcast and I had to apologize, Um, but she is quoted as, she is translated as Junia in the text, but there's a footnote to her that says, or Junius, according to some translations. And that's a very misleading footnote because the only, Junia never became Junius until the modern world. Really, you know, Martin Luther does it, um, but nobody else really does it. Martin Luther does it because he doesn't think that a woman can be an apostle. So he makes her Junius. Most other people, even Calvin, you know, they're like, no, that's not what the text says. It says Junia. And so they leave her alone. But in the 19th century, we see a resurgence. And really the primary reason they change her to Junius because their logic is, is that a woman can't be an apostle. And that's really it. That's their logic. And so they change her to Junius. And so, um, and then, you know, the ESV, what it does do is it's like, okay, so I can't. You know, by the time the ESV is produced, there is so much scholarly backlash against changing Junia to Junius because it's, you know, the evidence is overwhelming that she's Junia. Um, In fact, you know, one of the things that scholars really like to say is that there's not men in the first century world who are called Junius. It's not a name. And so, you know, they're like, well, you know, it's just, it's not there. It's not a name. Um, So Junia is the very prominent name that we see everywhere. Uh, So anyway, so there's so much evidence that they can't in good conscience translate her as Junius. So instead what they do is they change the description of her. And Junia, instead of being prominent among the apostles, becomes well-known to the apostles. And that's how the ESV. So even though the ESV gets her right about Junia, they do essentially the same thing. 
they take away what makes her an apostle. And the reasoning behind it is simply because they don't think a woman can be an apostle. Um, and in fact, you know, one thing that I was reading said, you know, essentially, if Junia is an apostle, that means women can lead. <laughs> and it's like, yes. <laughs> That's it. Yes, that's exactly what it means. Um, and so, but instead they've changed it because not because of what the Bible says, not because of the textual evidence for it, but because they cannot accept the idea that God gifted women just like men to be leaders in the church and that the first century church allowed and had women function as leaders. So that's one example that we see. Um, the ESV too is... It is unapologetically complementarian. That's their phrase. And so they do go out of their way to minimize women's leadership and to emphasize male headship. And they tell you that up front. So it's one of the, it mystifies me when people are like, I never knew the ESV did that. And I'm like, that's the primary reason the ESV exists um, well, is to do that, is to minimize female leadership and maximize male headship. There's a lot of significance to that in a religion that bases itself uh, ostensibly on a book yeah. that in order for it to make sense with their own institutional rules that they actually modify the sacred text that they are using to justify their rules of keeping women out of leadership. It's amazing if you really think about it. If you think hard, I mean, on the one hand to me, I try to keep a sense of humor. And so part of me, you know, tries to look at this and think, oh, wow, I can't believe they did this. This is so funny. But then you start thinking about it mm -hmm. and you're like, do they really understand what they've done? <laughs> you know, the significance of what they've done. And then if we think about the people, you know, I teach students, you, obviously I teach students, but, you know, women younger, women and men younger than me and significantly younger than me. And they are not only, I mean, they are so ready to be past this type of lim these limitations that are put on women because they don't feel them. They feel called and they feel like they can lead and they are so frustrated with their ministry leaders. In fact, you know, I had a student who just told me the other week that she felt a calling to be a pastor and she went and told her youth pastor and the response was that maybe that that couldn't be her calling because um, women can't be pastors. And she was really frustrated. She was like, she came and she talked to me and she was like, do, do you think that's right? And I said, if God's calling you to be a pastor, then you should, you should go with that. I said, that's not, uh, I said, I think I said your youth pastor has just been duped. That's <laughs> what I said. Um, a lot of us have been duped and it, and it harms the church and it harms women. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I kind of look at it, too, as like, you you know, you say duped, and you'll have to forgive me. I'm fairly cynical about uh, church leadership in some ways. but. Um, I also, I, I've said this, I don't know, for a really long time about how I, um, leadership, depending on the church, depending on the social structures, uh, they cherry pick things to kind of like fit oh, yeah. whatever narrative works for them. And so 
you know, some of it, I think, is when you said it's like amazing that, you know, do they realize the damage? Part of me is like, yeah, I think they kind of do. I think they absolutely do. Um, and there's a reason for it. And I'm not that's that's a broad brush. And I don't mean to say everybody has or everybody does. But, you know, when you look at the damage and then there was one part it was in the very first chapter um, in a lot of like social justice speak, you would say silence is violence, basically, that you perpetuate mm -hmm. um, continued violence yeah. and suppression when you don't speak out. Yeah. And I find it telling that the people who speak out tend to be excommunicated or they don't know what they're talking about or they're literally crucified by the you know court of public opinion. Um, and so it's just interesting to me that an entire translation of the Bible was created to subjugate. This was a conversation I had with my my dad actually, and he was very confused by that yeah. that subline of your your um um the title of your book. And I said, but it's that's literally what they've done. They've made it gospel when it wasn't meant to be. That's exactly right. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And you know, I'm 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 a little. I guess I don't know if cynical. I guess I am a little cynical. But I think it's a historical cynicism. And let's go back to the epic of Gilgamesh. I mean, why is Gilgamesh doing the things that he's doing? Because he wants to keep power and he wants to be remembered. He wants to be the most important one out there. And the thing is, is that we are all human. And that is a natural impulse in all of us is we want to be heard. I mean, and not just heard because we need to be heard or we've been left out, but we want, we want, you know, we have this, we want to be above other people. We want to, you know, we want to build hierarchies. We want to, you know, we often will compare ourselves like, well, maybe I'm not at this level yet, but I'm certainly better than these people. And so we have this, you know, the system of hierarchies. That's why patriarchy goes along with racism. Um, because it's this hierarchy. I mean, essentially what it says, it says some people simply because of the way they are born are better than other people. And that's the line that supports patriarchy and also supports racism. And so, you know, what we have to realize is that I think as Christians um, is that we are all prone to do that. And anytime we find ourselves trying to buttress up a system that gives people power without allowing any sort of way for other people to speak to them, for them to even hear, you know, even if they don't ultimately agree with each other, you have to have a system that allows conversation, that allows dialogue, that allows, you know, you know, Protestants get really upset when we think about that the Catholic Church at first rec didn't recognize Protestants as being Christians. And I'm like, well, what the heck do you think the ESV is doing? It is saying that if you you don't, and in fact, I don't know if y'all follow it. It took me a couple of days to realize that Denny Burke was actually talking against me, um, but he had an article in that he did, and he hit both Kristen Dumay and my book, um, and he said in there, he said essentially, he linked to my book, and he said he just finished it, and he said that um, he just read this book that also sort of shows that if you believe in women in leadership, you're ditching inerrancy. And if you ditch inerrancy, that leads to the slippery slope, you know, of um, not being faithful to the Bible. And I'm like, well, then you've just made it a first order issue. You have made gender roles. What you're saying is that if you don't believe that women are under the leadership of men, then you are not, you do not understand scripture the right way. 
and that you therefore are not, you know, you are not in the in crowd. You are not the best representatives of the Bible. You are not the leaders who should be listened to um, over this issue. It's, you know, this isn't, uh, anyway, so it's just this, um, it's used as a weapon to keep these voices away from the table and to not have dialogue. Uh, Kristen Dumay and I have talked about this a lot. In fact, we have a, we have this blog post, what we call it, you know, we often would do things that we didn't mean to one after the other and both of our books following each other. We didn't really plan this, it just kind of happened. Um, but we have a blog post series that we did a couple of years ago and we both wrote a blog post on evangelical fear um, just one right out, and we had no idea the other one was doing it. And this, so much of evangelical theology is driven by fear, and we're afraid, and we're afraid that God is not going to be big enough for our questions. And anytime theology is fear-driven, it leads to it it leads to unhealthy understandings. And, um, and it makes us unable to engage with the people of our world. Um, and it, it hinders us being able to share the gospel. So I think the problem, I think a lot of the ESV is fear-driven. And that to me is always a problem when we find that people are driven by fear. So I probably said a lot more than you wanted me to say. I'm sorry about that. I can talk a lot. <laughs> no, that, that, was, that was great. I think some of my favorite language and speaking with people is when they say it's a slippery slope or backsliding. I think those are some of my favorite um, things to kind of keep people quiet. Well, you know, I showed it to my husband and I was like, should I even respond to this? And he was like, well, why don't you say he just proved your point? <laughs> because and I was like, oh, like best way yeah. to go. <laughs> I was like, you're right. He did. He proved my point. So anyway. I think the events of January 6th may have shown that white evangelicalism itself was the slippery slope all along. <laughs> and one that people slid down really fast. Yes. Yes. You're yeah. exactly right. One of the other through lines in your book is actually different elements of the the cult of domesticity and the idea of women yeah. um, becoming uh, the keeper of virtue. And actually, I had um, just finished Stephanie Coons's book on marriage. She has a book oh, called yeah. Marriage a History. Uh, I, I listened to that just prior. I haven't to the, read it yet. So uh, anyway, it's it's very good. And it gives an, a very interesting look at uh, how marriage has changed in different societies over over human history. One of the things that I learned from that book was actually that the this idea of domestic virtue uh, being aligned with women primarily is is a relatively new historical phenomenon w within a few hundred years in cultures like in Western Europe. That was not the case. Right. And it does sort of speak to the ahistorical nature of a lot of uh, yes. white evangelicalism mm -hmm. um, and the practices that it preaches. I just wanted to throw in there, I got my theology degree at Seattle Pacific University, and I learned a lot of things about how the Bible of today came to be and they talked about like the doctrine of hell being relatively new and the idea of the bible being handed down in a red ribbon as it were being relatively new they did not talk about the evolution of men as keepers of virtue to women as keepers of virtue that was not questioned so i'm i was really interested to read that because that was new to me yeah, you know, that's funny because that moment, probably my students, I, I, 
I know I didn't name the student who asked me that question, but I think I'm going to get as soon as um, he reads it, I think he's going to be like, that was me. And I was like, yeah, that was you. Um, but I mean, I remember that, you know, that seminar because it was funny because you're, you're teaching and you have these teaching and suddenly you look around you and you're like, my students have no idea what I'm talking about. And it was really, it was that moment that I had where I suddenly was like, y'all don't understand what I'm talking about. And it really, it was because they had never heard this, that women in the medieval world were the sexual, were the seductresses. They were the temptresses. They were the ones because of their broken bodies, because they were further away, you know, their bodies made them further away from God. Their bodies made them more susceptible to, um, to negative influences and powers and Satan's influence. You know, think about Eve. Now the medieval world at least were redeems Eve with Mary, which is something that modern evangelicalism doesn't do. We just don't redeem her. But um, anyway, but in the medieval world, you know, this idea that women are um, more susceptible and are more likely to be the, the temptresses. And so, I mean, just think about medieval art where we see all of the, um, you know, I'm thinking about Michelangelo is his first painting that we think he did of St. Anthony in the desert. And it's at one of my favorite museums, not very far from here at the Kimball in Fort Worth. And, you know, it has all of these demons attacking them. And some of them, you know, are the feminine in the way that they're portrayed. And so this idea that even demons and so forth are often portrayed, you know, as, as having these female characteristics. Um, and so this is a very common you know, narrative that women are the ones who are going to be uh, tempting you, are going to be demanding sex from you, um, are going to be the weaker, you know, the sort of the weaker sex. That's the way it's kind of interpreted. And the reason that women, and so when women reject that sexuality, they become more like men, and then they're able to preach, teach, and lead in the medieval church. And so this is why virginity is important in the Western world, because it removes women from the, um, from you know, makes them more like men. They reject this female nature. They reject, um, you know, childbearing. They reject sexuality. And that enables them to have leadership voices. And so we get Hildegard of Bingen, who goes on preaching tours, et cetera. Um, so it kind of, you know, on the one hand, it does make women it fits with this Aristotelian idea that we have a really hard time getting away from, that women are you know, deformed, are monstrous, are more susceptible to evil than men. You can also think witchcraft. Why are women more susceptible to witchcraft? You know, it's always women's bodies are seen as more porous than men. Um, you know, influences come in and out. We have so many fun conversations in my class about a medieval text called the Trotula, um, which you know, if you're bored, go look up the Trotula. It's a 12th century um, text written by uh, a school of female physicians. Um, but anyway, but sort of these ideas that the women, women's body was more porous and more susceptible. And then in, you know, the early modern world, and this really is a shift after the Reformation where we start seeing this emphasis on the holy household and we start seeing this emphasis on women as wives. And instead, what we then begin to see is this emphasis on the fact that women are the virtuous ones, that women are the ones that are, you know, that are pure and pious and that it's the men who are going to corrupt them. And so part of keeping them in this household is providing this protection around them. Um, so anyway, it is, it's, it's very interesting. We have a lot of com fun conversations with students about it, but um, it's something that I think shows us how much our understanding of women and men's roles is tied to culture, 
not tied to the Bible. And I think that's really important for us to think about to be able to deconstruct biblical womanhood. I actually had a, um, something that kind of goes from that point to like the purity culture aspect of it. I feel like they, yes. domesticity yeah. and then the purity culture aspect of it is always so like, there's, there's, I don't like my, my feathers don't get ruffled often, but purity culture, like zero to 60 for me almost immediately. Um, I have, you know, three daughters. And so a big part of it for me was um, that I never want them to feel like they are responsible for the male gaze or, yes. or that their yes. bodies are something to be objectified and that they can do nothing about it other than wear a, you know, a burlap sack. And even that, who knows, you know, so there's just, it, I always, I always, my responses to that is like, some people find ankles attractive. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Oh, you have, yeah, oh, you have a, you know, I, just, you have a good mind. That's exactly it's right. Just, it's, it's maddening to me. And you, when you talked about that camp experience, I was like, every girl has had that experience at church camp. I had it. Um, you know, it, it was in a camp and we yep. were in like Maine and the, the leader was like, you can't wear that. I was like, I'm bathing in the river. I have a bathing suit on. Um, you know, this is against rules. I was like, you know what? Call my mom. She'll come get me from Vermont 22 hours. And so he let it go, but it was just, I, I find that part so frustrating when you were saying the thing about, um, you know, how it flipped the narrative to saying we're the keepers of virtue and men can't be held responsible, but they're the corruptors when did that start where they can't be held responsible? And I feel like that furthers the patriarchy mm. because, you know, they're, they're up here and we're not. No, it certainly does. The sort of, so, okay. So um, this is now, I mean, on the one hand, history is always complicated and there's always a lot of, you know, nuance in it. And so sometimes doing broad brush gets rid of some of that nuance, um, so on the one hand, history has, we have a long history of women being subject to violence by men and men getting away with it um, for all sorts of reasons. And one of the reasons is because women's testimony is not considered in court the well, as well as men's is. Um, in the medieval world, for women to have a successful accusation of rape, um, they had to be proven to have cried out and asked for help. And so it's the hue and cry. They had to have cried out. And if they didn't cry out, then it was seen as um, as acquiescence to it and that they, you know, accepted it. And so there is all sorts of, so, you know, I don't want to say that that has shifted, that this idea of male violence against women, this is this long history in this. Um, but what we do see happening with this idea with pure culture has really tapped into this um, 19th, 20th century idea that I think stems a lot from the cult of domesticity um, and this idea that men do have these uncontrolled, and actually it ties into the story of prostitution. There's so much about the story of prostitution that I wasn't able to talk about. And um, I live in Waco, Texas, and Waco was one of the, was the second place in the U.S. to actually have a legalized prostitution district. Most people don't know that. And we did until 1917. We had a legalized prostitution area. 
Um, and sort of the idea was, is that men need to release these sexual urges and that they need to do it in a way that women don't need to do it. And this is tied into this idea of this cult of domesticity, that women are not naturally sexual creatures, that they are naturally mothers, but they are not naturally sexual creatures. And men are naturally the sexual creatures. This is very much a part of the cult of domesticity that we see in the 19th century. And it carries over into the 20th century, you know, and this picks up again with purity culture. And so prostitution fit with this because it was like, okay, prostitution, legalized prostitution allows a safe way for men to express their sexual desires and for women, good women to be protected, uh, you know, from this. And so it was a way to control male sexuality. It still hurt women. Um, but anyway, so I think that it has, although its roots are not only in the cult of domesticity, I think that they were reinvigorated by the cult of domesticity, and it has given rise to what we to what we have today with this understanding that women are responsible for controlling male sexuality. Um, even the Billy Graham rule is a product of this. Um, you know, this idea that you can't be alone with a woman because you can't control yourself. You know that in some ways that you the only thing you can do is not you know is always be accountable because if you're alone with a woman, you won't be able to control yourself. And and that in some ways that's a little bit excusable too. So is that helpful a little bit? That takes me back to premarital counseling. Don't <sighs> ride in the car with your fiance. <laughs> I know. You know, I mean, you know, we've drawn so many lines and put so many things about what we think we are supposed to do that we have created a vast gulf between the practice of Christianity and Jesus. And it's just so sad to me because um, uh, so many people fall into that gulf and just don't come out again. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's not, it's not God, it's people that have messed it up. Well, I think that actually leads into where I'd like to try and conclude. This has been such a, a, a wonderful conversation and we can't touch on every aspect of your book. But I do want to talk about some of the things that have been leading the news and are directly related to your book. Yeah. So many, I imagine that you probably finished this book probably in 2020, gearing up for uh, the release and editing and everything else. There's things that have just dominated the news and moved a lot of these stories forward. Things like the the insurrection and the overt Christian nationalism that's, mm -hmm. that was on display there. Yep. Things like Beth Moore saying that she was leaving the, the Southern Baptist Convention and how that might mobilize other uh, white evangelical women to leave. Yeah. And other things that demographic shifts that, that people are taking note of. We're having a larger, broad sort of uh, national conversation about Christian nationalism. And within evangelical circles, they're starting to express concern about things like this podcast, like various evangelical communities <laughs> and demographic shifts. Because we're afraid. <laughs> yeah. And demographic shifts away from church membership. A lot of these things are just dominating our media right now. Um, yeah. So with regard to that, I am curious if you as an author are interested in maintaining some semblance of an evangelical identity or community um, and whether that's valuable uh, or whether the better course of action is to lead those communities and try to form new ones, uh, as well as your reaction to some of the things that, that we're seeing play out in the, in the headlines. Yeah. So, um, 
I, I don't know if you've paid a lot of attention to the conversations, of, probably you have, of course you have, to the conversations about what an evangelical is. And these have been dominating, you know, since 2016, what is an evangelical? And there's really two sides of it. And again, I think Kristen Dumay just encapsulates it. She had a talk that she gave recently where she talked about the imagined evangelicalism versus the reality of evangelicalism. And the reality of evangelicalism is that it's a culture and that it is very much a Southern culture too. And it has historical roots. The imagined evangelicalism is the theological underpinnings of evangelicalism, people who focus on Jesus, people who focus on the Bible, people who focus on evangelism, um, these sort of, you know, these basics. And so if you ask me, do I think evangelicalism is worth it? I'll say imagined evangelicalism is worth it. I think that this idea of, you know, this emphasis on Jesus, on the crucified Christ, and this emphasis on the gospel message, and this emphasis on the good news that we share with others, um, that's worth it. And that to me is in you know, it is in the evangelical world. You know, I've, I, I'm still a Baptist. I'm a Baptist. I haven't always been a Baptist, but I grew up Baptist and I'm now a Baptist again. I'm not a Southern Baptist, but I'm a Baptist again. Um, and part of it is because of the emphasis in the Baptist history on these, on these, what I would consider these imagined, you know, ideas of evangelicalism. Um, so I would say that that's worth it. Um, I think, however, there are a lot of churches who have become so enculturated by the by this material, physical, um, human part of evangelicalism that it's really hard that I'm not sure if they can ever separate themselves from it again. Um, you know, I the Southern Baptist Convention is it was making great strides in the early part of the 20th century um, in really, I think, in really trying to be focused on this imagined evangelicalism, I suppose, um, and, and it stopped and it went backwards. Um, and in fact, I, one of the things that Beth Moore said, although, you know, uh, she, it, it struck me, she said, um, you know, the way forward that repentance that the reason we're not moving forward is because the way forward requires repentance. And, um, and so that's, instead we're moving backwards. And so I, I think evangelicalism can be redeemed. I'm a very hopeful person. Um, you know, as Christians, we should be resurrection people. We believe, you know, Jesus came back from the dead. That means we can believe the impossible can happen. And so I think for that, but I also think that there are maybe some churches that that are not going to be redeemed in this way, um, that they are so controlled by voices that are refusing to listen and that are being harmful. Um, in fact, I had a woman who told me the other day that they left one of these churches because um, um, they had escaped an abusive situation and what was being preached from the pulpit um, was causing her son to cry every night because um, of the way, you know, his dad wasn't that way and, and you know, and didn't fit. And so it's sort of, it, it'd be like, I'd be like, leave, leave that, um, you know, find, uh, find a place that you can, you can meet God. And because I think the saddest thing about what's happening is that we have tarnished, we have tarnished Jesus. And that's one of the things I loved about Beth Moore's quote, 
what she said in her open letter to my brothers. And she said, we cannot see the face of Jesus in this sexism. And I think that's what's happened is that evangelicals, because of our claiming, our claiming that male female roles are tied into the gospel itself. What we have done is we have, we have, we have tarnished the face of Jesus and we've hurt people. And so I think evangelicals are going to have to reconcile with that. Same thing with racism. I think it's going to be hard. And I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. As historians, I'm much, I'm much more comfortable talking about the past than predicting the future. Um, so, but I think maybe this idea that only that the only biblically faithful people are complementarians, I think we are at a point where that is going is going to no longer exist, at least not there. The stranglehold that they have had, I think, is diminishing. And so, and I'm here for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm thankful that your book uh, is entering the marketplace and will enable those sorts of conversations because I do think the things that you raise in your book are really valuable for people that find themselves in these types of churches to have, as well as for people who may have had prior experience in these types of churches and just need to understand their past experience with a greater appreciation of, of context. And it just provides a lot of opportunity for all those different conversations to blossom as a result. So I'm thankful yeah. that that your book uh, is entering, uh, again, that, that marketplace and, and going to kick off those conversations both inside and outside the church, because I think both are valuable and both have their own purposes. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, I keep wanting to go to the coast now that I'm looking at these backgrounds of the beach. So <laughs> I'm just like, it's time for vacation, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on that note, thank you for joining us. Where can people find the book? Uh, it should be available by the, by the yeah. time this episode airs. Uh, and then I'll also have uh, Emily and Laura plug anything else that they'd, they'd like to mention as well. Yeah, I think you can find it anywhere. So it's a little scary. Uh, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really a, an out in the front of the line sort of person. I like to hide in the background. And so this is scary for me, but I think you can find it almost anywhere and in almost any format. Um, so. Great. And that includes the indie bookstores like Emily's. It so does. Emily. It includes. And then, yes. And in fact, I would love, um, I, I'm very grateful that it is in independent bookstores. Um, so I support my own favorite one in Waco. Emily, where could people find you online? My website is a seat at the table books.org. And if you Google a seat at the table books Elk Grove, you can also find that. We're on Facebook and Instagram, a seat at the table books, and kind of on Twitter, seat underscore books. That's not my strong suit. <laughs> but you can also support your local independent bookstore through bookshop.org. And that will help you find your local bookstore and go right to their website, or you can order through bookshop. and. Um, that's a really nice way to support the small businesses in your community, like mine and like Beth's favorite in Waco. And Laura, where can people find find you online? Right now, just I have um, Instagram and Facebook. I have to navigate the uh, the finer points of web design, which I unfortunately don't have the patience for yet. <laughs> um, but I'll get there. I keep people keep saying it, and so I'll hopefully get there and publish it sooner mm -hmm. rather than later. But um, Beth, I wanted to just say that I think these conversations are so necessary in the church and thank you for 
stepping out and writing it because this should be required reading. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reading it too. So I really appreciate y'all doing that. Well, thank you to each of you for joining me today. And I'm excited to hear the response to our conversation. Thanks for having us. Okay. See y'all later. Thank you so much. Yeah. This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends.